0: Can Opportunity Zones recover from the COVID-19 crisis? Find out next. Today's episode is a condensed audio recording of a live national webinar briefing on COVID-19 recovery strategies in Opportunity Zones. This webinar was sponsored by OZ Accelerator, Astra, and OpportunityDB, and features Senator Tim Scott, plus several expert panelists. For the complete version of this webinar in video format, head to OpportunityDB.com slash podcast and find episode number 104. Enjoy! We'll get to the panel shortly, but first I would like to introduce Eagles Milbergs, co-founder of OZ Accelerator and CEO of the Center for Accelerating Innovation and the mastermind behind today's webinar. So Eagles please take it away.
1: Thank you Jimmy, thanks for taking on the moderation role. I want to say a good morning to people on the West Coast and a good afternoon on the East Coast. This is a very important uh, event. from our standpoint and glad to host host it. A crisis is a unique opportunity to change the path of a nation, community, family, individual, or an opportunity zone. We're in the midst of a COVID-19 word cloud, quarantine, social distancing, PPE, N95, masks, $600 a week, stimulus, community spread, eviction, lockdown, flattening the curve, spike, virtual work, Hybrid education, vaccine trials, mass, and so on. The question for today is how opportunity zones will respond to this context. They have been devastated with unemployment, school shutdowns, and a financial freefall. For many residents of Oz communities, a sense of despair, fear, anxiety, frustration. The impact has been hard on the African American community, especially. Opportunity Zones have the potential to create a more optimistic and more hopeful outlook, a once-in-a-lifetime moment to change the course through investments in innovative solutions. The billions that are being committed to Opportunity Funds can offer capital, empowerment, and community impact, help build national recovery, and resilience. And for sure, this is a very multidimensional and extremely complex challenge. We're fortunate today to have a panel of expertise and experience so we can learn, uh, give us insights, hopefully guidance on what can be done. We cannot wait on a magical recovery. We must leverage the uncertainty for innovation. Opportunity zones need to act, not be acted upon. This is the mission of the Oz Accelerator, which is proud to be the organizer and host of this event. Also grateful to the collaboration with Bob Boga of Astra and our moderator, uh, Jimmy. And Senator Tim Scott, an author of the Opportunity Zone legislation, uh, he has graciously prepared some remarks to kick off our conversation today. Senator Scott, thanks for your leadership.
2: Hey, Senator Tim Scott here. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects, Opportunity Zones, and they continue to take off. Amazingly so, through this pandemic, while there's been some consternation around, how do we get our economic uh, activity moving again? One of the easiest ways to do that is through Opportunity Zones. Why do I say that? Simple, because today, more than 75, woo! $75 billion have been identified for Opportunity Zones. More than $10 billion of capital has been vetted and sent out, deployed in Opportunity Zones. What does that mean? That means that long-term we will see a recovery unlike what we saw in 2008. That is good news. Opportunity Zones will ensure an amazing recovery without any question, a better recovery than we would have had without it. Uh, If you think about Opportunity Zones also, what you'll realize is because of the pandemic, We've seen a relaxing of some of the reporting requirements in opportunity zones. That's good news. It takes some of the pressure off of meeting those deadlines that were based on a pre-pandemic America. And so because of the pandemic, lots of changes to the reporting requirements and the investment requirements. Uh, Take a closer look. If you need more information, feel free to give us a call. Phase four includes, phase four said differently, in the coronavirus response package, we call it CARES 2.0 or Phase 4, it includes a new $100 billion loan program for our hardest hit small businesses, which has an estimated 65% overlap with Opportunity Zones in terms of geographic requirements. This is great news. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, the chairman of the Small Business Committee, talked about the importance of this new small business loan program that would be extended for a 20-year loan at one percent for the most devastating uh for the most devastated areas of our country and the hardest hit businesses we are looking forward to seeing greatness arise like the phoenix from the global pandemic thanks so much
0: okay thank you eagles and thank you to uh Senator Scott for providing that uh, pre-recorded video for our group today. Uh, I'm going to quickly introduce each of today's panelists now and I'll give each one of you, the panelists, a, a quick chance to say hello. Don't dive into your discussion points just yet. If you could just limit it to about 30 seconds, maybe tell us a little bit more about you and your organization. Brett Theodos will be our first panelist. He's, the, he's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. I recently had him on my podcast a week or two ago. Uh, Brett, can you say hello, please?
3: Hi everyone, so good to be with you. Um, Happy to talk about OZs. I study community development finance uh, at the Urban Institute, which is a nonprofit research group based in DC.
0: Fantastic, thanks for joining us today, Brett. Our second panelist will be Emily Lavery. She's a legislative assistant for Senator Tim Scott. Emily, please say hello.
4: Yeah, hey everyone. Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, It's always great when I can get some time out of my day to talk about Opportunity Zones and Senator Scott's Keystone Legislation. Um, so thank you guys again for
0: having me. Fantastic. Our third panelist today will be Jim Sorensen. Uh, he's an impact investing pioneer, chairman of the Sorensen Impact Foundation and managing partner at Catalyst OZ Funds. He's, he's fantastic and I do hope he's able to join us. Jim is here. So we, we will hear from him very shortly. I'll be sure to get that panelist invite link to him so he can log in as a panelist. Dustin Lester will be our next panelist. He's the vice president of consulting for community insights at MC. Dustin, please say hello.
5: Hello. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about Opportunity Zones. Uh, I've done uh, a lot of work with Opportunity Zone research and analysis and communities. Uh, I come from an economic development background, uh, both as a practitioner and a consultant. So really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all today. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you, Dustin. Uh, Catherine Lyons is joining us from the Economic Innovation Group. Uh, She's the manager of policy and coalitions there. Catherine, could you please say hello?
6: Hi, yes. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Catherine with uh, Economic Innovation Group. Uh, We are a nonprofit bipartisan research and advocacy organization based in Washington, DC. And we were essentially the architects of the Opportunity Zones uh, concept. Um, We're playing obviously very closely with Senator Scott and Booker and our house champions as well to turn that into legislation and have been uh, very active on the implementation of the incentive since its passage.
0: Fantastic. And uh, then finally, last but not least, we have Robert Scott joining us today from SBA. Robert, can you please say hello?
7: Hi, uh, Rob Scott, Regional Administrator for the U.S. Small Business Administration in the Great Lakes region.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Robert. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, So we do have Jim here. Uh, I'm going to get that sorted out while Brett kicks us off uh, with his prepared remarks. Uh, Brett Theodos, you're our first panelist today, Senior Fellow at the Urban Institute and a recent guest on my Opportunity Zones podcast, Uh, Recently, he was the lead author on a research report titled An Early Assessment of Opportunity Zones for Equitable Development Projects. I know you have quite a bit of information to share and insight from your perspective, Brett. So please
3: take it away. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, And again, great to be with you. So um, I'm not going to go into too many of the findings from our report. I'm going to dwell on some of the questions motivating this webinar. Particular, the impact of COVID 19 on OZ projects, investors, and funding. Um, and uh, as I see it, as I observe the world and have conversations um, and look at data, the effects are serious. Um, and they are, of course, locally contextualized. And so we have a lot of different markets. I mean, that's one of the realities of OZs to begin with. We have areas that have, you know, zones that have a median home value of $2 million and we have zones that have a median home value of $14,000. So we really have quite a divergence and diversity among the zones. And so certainly how they're experiencing COVID um, also has some diversity. Um, But there we are in a much more challenging environment than we were. So just in DC, for example, we have record level commercial office vacancies um, uh, North of 15%. And that was a dynamic that predated COVID, but for which COVID is certainly making things worse. Um, and to the question of whether OZs can recover, um, I would say as a program as a whole, um, yes, um, you know, definitively. Um, to me, uh, a more nuanced question is then, how about the zones themselves? Um, and I think there the answer it lies more in the realm of yes for some and for other zones um, not anytime soon um, and all of this of course depends on the timeline for a vaccine and returning to something closer to normal. Um, so when we think about new opportunities for investment generated by COVID, um, is there silver lining? Um, is COVID going to disrupt things in a good way? Or are we going to Produce um, some benefit from all the sacrifice, um, and, and I, I I struggle to see that many upsides. Um, I'm I'm sure there will be some, um, but uh, at least in terms of the investment market, at the moment we're not actually seeing big price drops. Um, so we're not seeing people able to you know repurpose and be able to. Retrofit and and rethink uh, a new economy locally. Mostly, people are still kind of holding on, and and hoping we get back to normal pretty soon. So, um, you know, whereas the 08, 09 crisis, uh, you know, we certainly saw a lot of decreasing land values, property values that allowed for some reinvestment um, with time. Though obviously a lot of consequence as well. We haven't observed that yet. We we have seen some fire sales. We've seen some projects. You know, move ahead at lower prices than they would have otherwise, but we haven't seen kind of a wholesale correction yet to property values. Um, but the longer this goes on, the, the more that that may well be coming, especially with rent. Um, and I think part of the answer, and this does draw from our research findings that uh, it informs my take on how OZs are faring in a time of COVID is to remember that OZs are often a small part of a project's capital stack. So it could be 5% um, or 3% or maybe 10%. Sometimes they're more, um, but often they're a small part of the project's capital stack. And so the subsidy delivered through the Opportunity Zone incentive itself is relatively shallow, um, at least especially when we're talking about the temporary deferral and the basis step up. And so that means we're swapping out, hopefully, what is a lower price equity um, for other equity. Um, But it means, um, you know, often, as we have seen in our research, is that um, a lot of project sponsors and investors, the majority of which we spoke with, though not all, um, to be clear, um, reported that the OZ projects they were engaging in would have gone ahead in the same timeline in the same form, even if the incentive wasn't available. And that, in part, reflects the relatively shallow nature of the subsidy, at least the upfront parts. Um, so, if OZs are a relatively small part and they're relatively substitutable for other forms of equity um, on the whole, again, lots of examples individually where that's not the case, but on the whole, um, then we would expect the broader dynamics in the commercial real estate market and in the multifamily um, market, for which are the biggest uses so far of OZs, to really be the trend for OZs as well. Um, you know, OZs are going to rise and fall with those markets. Um, and so to the extent that those markets are slowed down, which they are, then OZs will be too. So some deals are getting done, construction is happening, um, but this is also a very challenging time to be a landlord, not to mention a very challenging time to be a, a tenant. And So then I, I'll, I'll wrap with a couple of reflections on what kind of projects are needed for a more robust and resilient recovery. Um, And the most important thing as I see it, which really has been the most important thing even before COVID, but is all the more to the front now, is projects that can generate jobs, um, which principally means projects that are operating business investments, um, less principally, Real estate investments. Real estate um, investments often substitute um, one investment for another. You know, this grocery store opens, but that means that one goes out of business. Um, it's not a one-for-one, one, but it is the case um, when we look at the economics of real estate investments, they're less additive to local economies. And so um, we're really interested in OZ type investments that are not just moving a building across the street from where it would have been. Um, but really adding new economic activity where it wasn't there previously, most notably through job creation and business formation. And so that also means especially, and this was true pre-COVID and it's true post-COVID and it's true post-COVID recovery, um, but really pushing much more into communities that are truly lacking from investment. And that is true for certainly many of the zones, um, though not all of them. And so that's really the place where if we need to emphasize going forward, um, we need to double down in those communities uh, in particular. Thanks.
0: Fantastic, thank you, Brett. Thanks for joining us today. So our, uh, by the way, we did get Jim Sorensen in the room and I'm gonna bring him in in a minute. Uh, but first, we've got our, our second panelist today is Emily Lavery. Uh, as a reminder, she's the legislative assistant to Senator Tim Scott, and she's one of the nation's leading Opportunity Zone Policy experts, we're very pleased to have her with us today, uh, Emily. How are you doing?
4: Good. You are far too kind to me in your introduction, but I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, Emily, I've got—I don't—I know you don't have any prepared remarks, but we've got some some questions here. This panel is going to be a little bit different. I'll be throwing some some questions at you. So, uh, you know, obviously, today's panel is going to focus on COVID nineteen and opportunity zones, both in terms of how Opportunity Zones can recover from the pandemic and how the incentive can help the nation recover as a whole, and particularly in those low-income areas that get hit so hard by these recessions. So Emily, my first question for you is, uh, how are Opportunity Zones faring during this uncertain and tumultuous time?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I think Senator Scott said it best when he said that, you know, Opportunity Zones continue to take off. Mike and his team over at are actively tracking more than $75 billion in planned investments, which is incredible to see. Um, I mean, in terms of anecdotal evidence, right, just in the last few weeks, Second Chance's farm in Delaware secured a $1.5 million investment. A startup in Erie just received a $1.2 million investment. Launchpad, who does incredible stuff in co-working and entrepreneurship spaces, is uh, based in New Orleans, but will be opening its first location in Arizona shortly. So, you know, as we talk about developing um, entrepreneurship specifically, and giving rise to job creators and skill building entities, um, you know this is the kind of stuff that gets us really excited, and I know that Senator Scott gets really excited about it as well. Um, and of course, you know we also recently had the u s Conference of Mayors adopt a resolution affirming their support for opportunity Zone, so um, it's it's been a good couple of weeks, um, even in the midst of the pandemic.
3: Good. Good. Uh,
0: yeah, hopefully, you know, obviously, one of the catalysts for opportunity zones was that a lot of areas got left behind from the previous reset session of now about, a you know, 11, 12 years ago. Uh, you know, we're hoping things can go a little bit differently this time around. You know, we saw recently that the IRS issued key guidance to provide additional flexibility uh, for opportunity zones in terms of pushing back some some deadlines. Investors in many cases now have until the end of this year. Uh, the 180-day window's been uh, kind of disregarded just because of uh, what's happened here with the pandemic and, and our nation's response to it. Uh, that guidance came a few weeks after Senator Scott, uh, your boss, had issued a letter to the Treasury Department requesting this relief. Could you give us some background on that guidance uh, and specifically share how you think it will help to ensure that the OZ incentive uh, continues?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, first and foremost, huge shout out to Treasury um, for getting that turned around in just six weeks. Similarly, EIG and Novogratz sent letters as well. um, And so we super appreciated that. Senator Scott pulled together um, a letter outlining 10 main requests for immediate relief for Opportunity Zones during the pandemic. Um, He was joined by nine members, seven of which are Senate Finance Republicans. So it's always great to be able to see some committee support for Opportunity Zones where and when find it especially now um and so treasury turned that around in about six weeks which is incredible and we're super grateful um but yeah in a nutshell you know i think you, you kind of started to cover it but again the new guidance extends certain 180 day investment windows until the end of the year gives folks more time to meet substantial improvement timelines um gives funds more time to invest and ensures that funds businesses projects community organizations etc are not held liable for circumstances beyond their control by allowing for a reasonable cause exception for the 90% asset test through the end of the year. So again, in our view, these are extremely common sense, um, you know, fixes and solutions that needed to get done. And again, those were echoed in EIG and democratic letters as well um, in a number of places, though of course there's always, you know, a bit of nuance. Um so again that was that was huge to see that get done so quickly, and again, it's about providing that um additional layer of flexibility during this time when again the markets are are all over the place
0: right, right. uh your boss, Senator Scott, he's been vocal for a while and and I've been hearing the same thing about you know needing certain legislative changes to the opportunity zone statute. Uh, in particular, a lot of the people that I talk to regularly really want that 2026 deadline pushed back at least a couple of years. I mean, that would do a couple of things. One, it would allow more time to harvest more capital gains and just push the sunsetting of the program back, you know, a couple more years. But also, it would reopen that seven-year window to get that 15% basis step-up, which I think is important. Is there a potential to get any? legislative changes, and in particular, that one pushed through this year, do you think, Emily?
4: Um, Yeah, well, I mean, in short, I would love to see that as well. Um, Frankly, I think especially when you're taking into account the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You know, I was laughing with a friend the other day thinking about how in March we were thinking, there's no way this goes until July. Um, And here we are in August. So as we talk about needing a two-year timing extension, I don't think it's ever made more sense than it does right now. Um, And similarly, EIG, who just had a really awesome national survey come out not long ago, um, that found that 64% of respondents said that having a timing extension of the 2026 window would make the incentive more effective for the recovery more broadly. So again, having that kind of data and those kinds of answers on the book for us to lean on is, is really helpful. But again, it's not only about Um, you know, providing more time to revive those benefits, but it's also addressing the realities that again, you know, opportunities and implementation take some time in certain localities. Um, And we want our community organizations and our local governments to have as much time as possible to reap the benefits and harvest the potential of the incentive.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, Emily, I want to make sure we have enough time for the rest of our panelists today. We're going to be continuing our discussion uh, on, on our Opportunity Zones podcast interview coming up in a week or two here, so uh, be on the lookout for that later this month, most likely. Jim, hello. Can you just very briefly introduce yourself?
8: It's great to be here, and I'm sorry for the delay, uh, Jimmy. I'm here uh, ready to talk a little bit about uh, Catalyst, um, which is uh, an Opportunity Zone fund, our investment thesis and strategy, uh, a little bit about our uh, real world uh, case study uh, and how we're striving to really drive deeper impact through uh, our capital and through our financial models and key partnerships with government, philanthropy and nonprofits. So a little bit about me, Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur for most of my life. Um, I've spent two decades As an impact investor, I founded the Sorensen Impact Foundation in 2012 and was quite involved in uh, the passage of the Opportunity Zone legislation. I formed Catalyst Opportunity Fund to be an example for transformative impact investing. Our current funds are focused exclusively on real estate, but uh, we do plan to do uh, businesses later. We partner with best in class developers, community stakeholders, and uh, focus on on overlooked markets that are usually off the coast. Intentionality and collaboration are key to generating competitive financial returns alongside measurable social impact, and that's really our goal. Our strategy really involves finding uh, opportunities in four key impact categories. The first is housing affordability, and that's along a spectrum of deeply affordable to workforce housing, The second is economic development, which really involves business incubators, accelerators. Launchpad was mentioned. Uh, They're a great uh, partner uh, out there. Uh, The third category is really access to services. That's health clinics, charter schools, affordable grocery, and nonprofit wraparound services where needed. And then finally, environmental sustainability. We really focus on um, net zero, uh, development and uh, adaptive reuse our markets are initially in the uh, secondary and tertiary markets that are off the coast and uh, these are examples of where we're at uh, and our in-depth analysis of these markets suggests an encouraging uh, early uh, resilience to covid 19 uh, impacts a hallmark of our strategy, our investment strategy is our impact scorecard. We take impact measurement seriously, and uh, intentionality is a big part of that. So we do a community needs assessment up front. We then utilize the scorecard that you see in helping us to underwrite the factors such as the commitment of development partners to, to impact, community engagement, housing affordability, what is needed. Social inclusion, how can that be generated? Access to services, economic development, and sustainability. And then we have a post-investment dashboard of over 20 data sets that we collect and measure and report these impact metrics over the life of the investments. Financial innovation in the form of blended capital stacks is a key framework for moving beyond traditional real estate development into deeper impact in Opportunity Zones. And that really involves project level blending of market rate seeking return uh, from catalysts with public subsidy, philanthropy, and impact capital. Uh, I will give you some examples of these and actual projects now that we have done. The first is um, an adaptive reuse of a turn of the 19th century iron foundry. The capital stack here involves grants for business incubators, CRA concessionary debt, and, and city participation in the funding. The social impact is really a, a best-of-class business incubator that involves uh, coding bootcamp tenant, flexible office, makerspace, and uh, collaborative services to help in economic development. The next is uh, a mixed-use project. This is in Minneapolis, it's a blended capital stack, again, of innov- innovative approach to financing that involves state grants and, uh, and, and also local uh, environmental re- remediation support. The social impact is really, uh, I think, access to, uh, to services, an immigrant-focused charter school, and really the environmental improvement of this very distressed area. The third case study involves, uh, again, a blended capital stack. And uh, here you have a health system, a local health system, that is providing concessionary capital, 2% uh, money. There is a city land grant, CRA bank, which is uh, debt, which is also on concessionary terms. This enables really deeper impact with really low rates for nonprofit wraparound services and providers, uh, and community programming. And then finally, uh, an adaptive reuse of an 80-year-old granary building. And this utilizes Litec, historic tax credits, and CRA debt on concessionary terms in the capital stack. And again, it really enables through this collaborative, innovative approach to finance, uh, a social impact for refugees, focused workforce training, low income housing, and space for community program and and wraparound services. So I think these are really great examples of uh, the type of investing and intentional approach that Catalyst has taken. And I think it's this collaborative uh, effort, working with communities, understanding what the needs are, being long-term in your, your outlook and systematic in your investment that's going to ultimately transform over the long-term these distressed communities to more vibrant communities.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Jim Eagles. Uh, I don't know if you have any, any follow-up questions for Jim there, <laughs> yeah. otherwise we can, we can move on.
1: Yeah, so I have a question. Um, so it looks like Catalyst puts in uh, a small amount of equity into this capital stack that you talk about uh what kind of difference is the uh equity investment make to the overall um, value of the project and its potential return the way you look at it
8: right well i think first of all we take a very again collaborative approach with the developers we seek developers that share our the ethos that have track records in communities that have been successful that are working with uh local and state government to begin with and share the vision of uh, really the impact that we want to achieve. Um, I think the, that approach and, and effort really enables us to, uh, to add value in the programming of the space. We have relationships with uh, national grocers, with health systems, with uh, nonprofits, workforce development, so forth. Um, that we can bring as tenants and participants in the area, so you know there's value uh, from that standpoint, certainly the capital is necessary uh, and is uh, you know going to be needed uh, and and that patient capital is enabled by the opportunity zone uh, legislation and and uh, the alignment of investors to invest in that manner
1: All right so the other related question is uh regarding projects you're looking at what what kind of asset appreciation are you looking for in projects that you invest in that's one of the questions from one of the attendees
8: right so uh we we generally measure that in internal rate of return uh over the 10-year life and uh, you know in in uh that takes into account the uh, the income that's coming during the period of the cash on cash uh, yield each each year, uh, you know. And we're targeting uh, you know nine to eleven percent on on these uh, investments as before, the tax incentive, um, and we have a fairly conservative underwriting process. So um, you know we feel uh, confident in being able to 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 meet those returns. I don't know if that answers your uh, question there, but that's typically what we're looking at. On a, on a MOM basis, that's usually you know about a, a, a two and a half X uh, on the investment. Yeah,
1: thanks.
0: Yep. Yeah, thank, thank you, Jim, and, and thanks, Eagles, for providing the questions. So our next panelist is Dustin Lester. He's joining us today from Community Insights at MC. He is the Vice President of Consulting there. Please do take it away. Okay.
5: Well, I, I want to start by saying uh, thanks again. It's really a, a pleasure and a, an incredible opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, you know, this is an important topic and um, really want to demonstrate today how data can help tell your Opportunity Zone story um, and, and connect to the recovery. And it's, and it's to tell your Opportunity Zone story uh, to fit with your strategy, and to position your opportunity zones for success. And so, um, you know, there are, um, MZ, we're, we're a data and analytics company, you know, that is our specialty. Um, and being the vice president of consulting, what I do is I apply MZ's specialization in providing modeling, labor market information, and industry analytics, and applying that to solutions for economic development, workforce development. And you know community resiliency, and you know it's an important thing to to marry the two. Um, I've been an economic development practitioner, uh, working a lot of economic development pro- uh, projects. Been on a workforce development board, and you know from that experience, the the most important tool that I had in working with businesses and with the community is data. And so I'm so proud to have the ability to in this role now lead a team of consultants to apply EMSI data, other data too, third-party data, and, and then work with communities to provide solutions. And Opportunity Zones is, is no different from our, our typical work. Um, so a little bit more about EMSI. MC. EMSI's mission is to use labor market data to inform and connect people, education, and employers. That's our core mission. That's the work we do on a daily basis. We provide labor market and economic data job postings data, profile and resume data, and MC skills. And there's really just, there's so much here to unpack, but the big picture here is we can really work with communities from uh, national le- level to states, MSAs, counties down to the local level to really tell that story down to the census tract level. Obviously that's a big part of why we're here today is um, you know, connecting that data to the census tract level for opportunity zones, Uh, but really to understand uh, what the workforce dynamics are in those communities and what industries and what the demographics are, and then how to apply this data. And then with our MZ skills data, we're starting to look, you know, why this is so important, uh, not only for MZ but for many communities. And I've heard other panelists today talk about skills, skills cuts across um, rigid SOC codes, you know, SOC codes are standard, standard occupation codes. Very important to understand the labor market landscape. But sometimes it doesn't always tell the complete story. You may have um, one, you, you may have two workers, uh, one that works for a financial institution and one maybe for a, uh, you know, a particular software development uh, company and the, they may fall into the same SOC code, occupation code but their skills may be completely different and the skills required of their employers um, and communities, the demand from the, on the community side may be completely different. So that's why MZ has invested a tremendous amount of our work to not only uh, focus our attention on labor market information in a traditional way, but also um, adding that dynamic of skills and what that means for communities. Uh, so a big thing about Opportunity Zones, a big big thing that we're understanding is that there's this inaccurate tendency to treat opportunity zones as the same type of geography. Um, they they are all different. You know there there are urban opportunity zones, rural opportunity zones, suburban opportunity zones, and so um, they should be treated different because there's so many v- variables that are impacting their performances. These tools to advance economic opportunity in their communities, and so the best way, really, one, one of the only ways to assess the conditions and markability of an opportunity zone for your community. Is through data, and there are various different types of data that can be applied here. And I, I list some here: labor market information, industry analytics, what we really thrive on here at MZ, business intelligence, real estate data, obviously very, very relevant. Um, complementary tools and incentives. What's the what's the community's package of resources um, to to really tell that story? And then qualitative data. That's something that could be easily missed and really telling the story of what's going on in Opportunity Zone is it, it, it's so important to ground truth, to get into the community, have conversations with your, your, your residents, your businesses, your stakeholders, and understand um, applying that objective, you know, quantitative data with, um, you know, the individuals who live and work in Opportunity zones. Uh, so a little bit about how MC, um our data, and how it can directly impact and, and help. An opportunity zone analysis. We have census tract data, which is great. Uh, We have demographic data, which is um, is available. Uh, Because of you know a a small limitation is that there's a little bit of lag in data. Um, Our data and and other model data uses government sources, and so those government sources can have a few month lag. So uh, this data is available now, but the first true round of COVID nineteen data is available in early October. Uh, same with industry data very important to understand uh, down and what's really special about our data is it's down to the six dish at NAICS code level so it gets very specific about what type of industries are in an opportunity zone uh, once again the the first round of COVID-19 data this fall MZ is in the process of modeling occupation data down at the census tract level so this is in development uh, we're hoping that this will be available sometime this year and then business listings data this is very important to understand who are the existing business what's the existing business community who are those who are those businesses um, in the community and you know what are those opportunities to to work with those businesses to expand investment in an opportunity zone there's also additional uh, mz data that's available um, at a higher geography at the county or MS, msa level but i i want to stress that um, that data can also be applied at the opportunities Opportunity zone level um, just because it's not modeled confined and confined at the census track level doesn't mean it can't be applicable and relevant to some uh, To census tracks and opportunity zones, and you know, that's we, we have some broader sets of labor market information educational data uh, Understanding the labor shed obviously not everybody who um, Works in an opportunity zone lives in the opportunity zone and vice versa. Not everybody who lives uh, works there so it's, under, uh, it's good to apply a broader regional labor shed to uh, opportunity zone analysis, supply chain. It's great uh, to understand what those gaps are in a, in a regional industry supply chain and then understanding those gaps can be applied at the opportunity zone level. So big, that could be a good opportunity for, a, for an entrepreneur to be successful and come in and fill a market gap. And then of course I mentioned our MD Skills data. I have two uh, examples. I wanted to uh, um, demonstrate how we could, you know, there are so many different stories and different uh, data stories to tell uh, in working with investors and, and you know, develop, developing a prospectus or working with existing businesses. But I picked um, San Antonio as an MSA to look at an urban example in Bear County and a rural example in Atascosa County uh, to demonstrate just some differences, some differences in the numbers, and you know what might be relevant for a community, and how uh, data can be applied to to really dig in deep and uh, get dynamic with the story you want to tell about your opportunity zone. So, a quick um, example in Bear County, which is if you're uh, seeing the map here, it's it's right here, right in the virtually right in the center of uh, San Antonio. Uh, you know, I saw the numbers on I compiled the the. I aggregated the numbers on IT related industries, you know, 170 jobs. Financial services, 219. Restaurants, obviously, very hard hit with uh, with COVID nineteen. So it's it's good to understand um, where what kind of pre COVID nineteen numbers. Once again, that's what we're dealing with right now. Um, and then demographics. We can dive really deep into the demographics. It's very important as you're looking at um, you know issues of equity and. You know, looking at opportunities, uh, you know, in that in the community. So it's good to understand what the, the demographic makeup is um, of a community, and so we can do that down to the census tract level. So this is that one op- um, opportunity zone in Bear County, uh, and then a rural example. Um, you know, in this county, uh, natural resource energy related jobs were uh, were very large um, you know, three hundred fifty two for a county. Uh, this is an opportunity zone in a county, of, uh, not even 50,000 people, small number of manufacturing jobs. And um, we, you know, I think it's easy to, to forget, you know, actually education and, and local government. You know, government jobs can really be a, a big base of employment for some communities. So uh, once again, part of the analysis. And then uh, once again, the, the demographics for Atascosa County on the roll end. And uh so one thing that we're we're doing at MZ is um since we have a, a bit of a data lag, we wanna we wanna combine real-time data with uh with our labor market data and also COVID-19 data. So we have actually um, released the re reemployment data. This is the Atlanta example. I'll just quickly click through here, but it really, you know, it provides some great data that's combining uh, COVID-19 statistics real time with um with workplace and economic development data. So you're looking at industry postings, uh, company postings, who's po- posting the most, who's posting the least, uh, what careers are trending and not trending. So I wanna thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, you know, happy to answer any follow-up questions.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Thank you, Dustin. Really appreciate it. A lot of great data that your organization provides there. Uh, We're going to move on to, uh, we've got two more panelists uh, today, and then Eagles uh, is going to give some some closing remarks. We'll start with uh, Catherine Lyons. Catherine is manager of policy and coalitions at the Economic Innovation Group, or you may know them as EIG. Uh, They're the... uh, the research group in Washington, D.C. that really spearheaded the Opportunity Zones initiative and and created the legislation. Please take it away.
6: Great. Well, thank you again for having me. Um, it's really great to be here among uh, such an esteemed group. Um, so uh, I will try not to repeat what a lot has uh, what's already been discussed um, by several of my fellow panelists. Um, but I'll start with just giving kind of a brief overview of where we were at um, at the beginning of this year, kind of pre-pandemic. Um, I'll go into a little bit more detail um, of the survey that Emily mentioned uh, post-pandemic and so its impact on opportunity zones and the market. Um, And uh, and I'll end with a few examples um, that we are seeing actually kind of post pandemic um, that are continuing on with a particular emphasis on deals uh, into operating businesses um, since that's been also a point of conversation and one that we think is going to be really important um, for a robust recovery. Um, So I'll start by just uh, probably going through what everyone already knows here. we entered the beginning of 2020 with actually quite a bit of clarity. Um, finally, we got final regulations. Um, That had been in the works for about two years. Um, We also saw the expiration of the seven year tax benefit at the end of last year, um, which really led to an uptick uh, in investment um, before the end of that, uh, before the end of 2020, or sorry, before the end of 2019, at the start of 2020. Um, As Senator Scott said at the top of this webinar, uh, Novogradic has estimated as of April 2020 that more than $10 billion has been raised. Um, But then, of course, we entered a period um, of uh, great uncertainty um, with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So, you know, in response to that, uh, a lot of the questions we received was, how is this impacting the market? Uh, And so we wanted to get a better sense of that um, from practitioners actually on the ground. And so um, we uh, hosted a survey. in. Uh, May of this year uh, with about 108 survey respondents, uh, 42% of those were fund managers, but it also included responses from service providers across the spectrum, uh, project sponsors, capital providers, um, and some of those community leaders who are leading the strategy and efforts um, in particular cities uh, and, and their work on opportunity zones. Um, So I've just included a couple of the highlights here, but certainly there's more information um, on our website um, where you can really dig into some of the results. Um, But as you can see here, uh, in terms of investor behavior, which I think is the most common question that we received about how how that was impacted um, by the onset of the the pandemic and the economic disruption that that it caused, um, 71% of prospective investors remain interested uh, even if they were currently hesitant to commit. And we did hear that some were waiting for a bit more stability to to uh, come into the market to get a better sense of you know, how long this crisis would be, how it was continuing to unfold. Um, again, this was kind of around the Memorial Day weekend um, timeframe that we, that we conducted the survey. So um, obviously it's a point in time kind of situation and things are, are certainly shifting and continue to shift you know, from there. Um, also of note, this was conducted before the guidance that IRS and Treasury put out that we've discussed earlier um, that did provide some additional flexibility around timelines. Um, and other requirements of opportunity funds and investors, um, which was obviously hugely helpful, um, you know, in providing a little bit more certainty there as well. Um, you know, what we saw also is that forty-eight percent of investors said that they are looking to place capital, um, and uh, while only twenty-four um, percent said that they're not going to pursue OZ investments at least at that point. Um, since we have uh, Emily and other policymakers here on the call and, and um, participating, um, I did want to also call out that there is a clear case for policymakers here as well. Um, and of course, we're working closely um, with their offices on some of these initiatives too. Um, you know, A lot of the respondents said that uh, you know how they see opportunity zones as a tool for recovery is at least in part dependent um, on the actions of policymakers. And particularly, as Emily already mentioned, um, a majority of respondents said that extending that deferral beyond 2026 would be incredibly helpful uh, to some of their work. Um, You can see here some of the other types of policies um, that also had support uh, including, um, you know, new tax benefits and funding local capacity building uh, which I think is incredibly important especially now um, in the in the wake of this uh, too. Um, I won't go through this in great detail since we've already discussed it but again this, um, you know, EIG was involved in asking IRS for additional guidance and flexibility. They responded, uh, I think answered nearly all of the recommendations that we provided, and and many of the ones that Senator Scott asked for as well. Um, So again, this really did provide some some great assistance to investors to continue on in their their investments. Um, And I think a lot of investors that we've talked to, both through the survey and outside of that, have said that the the patient capital that Opportunity Zones really incents, and the 10-year hold period um, through which you get the best or the the kind of most um, lucrative benefit uh, certainly makes this an incentive that is possibly kind of well-timed for, or or well-suited to, I think, the moment that we're in. Um, So I'll close out with just a few uh, examples of uh, investments that are ongoing. Um, And again, you'll see here by the dates that many of them um, are actually, uh, were either in process or continued um, even post-pandemic. And so um, this is a real focus to uh, kind of picked certain projects um, that really highlight the um, investments that we're starting to see into operating businesses. Um, The regulations were um, hugely helpful to providing clarity for both communities and investors uh, to start to make these investments into operating businesses. Uh, I know that um, real estate certainly has has seen the, or the vast majority of, you know, deals currently um, are into real estate, but that um, is at least in part a function of the regulations as well. Um, and so I think that uh, we're really starting to see an uptick in, um, in, in the part of the market uh, focused on operating businesses. Um, so for example, uh, and I think I want to point out a couple of things too, a couple of trends really in the and that co-working and accelerator spaces are really playing an important role here in the kind of community uh, ecosystem building here around um, uh, uh, operating businesses and um, funneling investments into uh, qualifying businesses in, in these opportunity zones. Um, so we're seeing that when we're in Ohio, um, Bright Energy Innovators um, announced two of its portfolio companies would receive opportunity zones investments. Um, uh, I know Launchpad's been mentioned, I think, twice already. So I'll go ahead and mention them a third time for good measure, um, and that makes Mesa Arizona deal um, that was just announced uh, last month uh, is a great example of um, really a cornerstone of community revitalization um, for Mesa. Um, And also, of course, they as a business are also receiving, um, you know, Series A funding through that that deal um, and co-locating into the the caliber um, commercial real estate uh, opportunities of deal as well. And so again, I think a really great kind of example of some of that balance. Um, I know I'm probably running up on time, as, uh, so I will I will uh, close out quickly here. Um, one I just wanted to note, because I think it's particularly well-suited again for this time, is that um, uh, in Chicago, Illinois, Verte OZ, um, fund uh, is connecting underrepresented job seekers to a broader network um, of uh, opportunities um, and so they've created a, a company, they're invested in a company there that will um, again help some help job seekers find new, new employment um, in this time. We actually have an investments page um, that lists, I believe all of these investments are part of that. Um, So you can dig into this a little bit more on our website as well. Um, The last one I'll mention, just because it's a personal favorite as a former journalist, Um, in Brookville, Indiana, a case study actually that LISC uh, did the CDFI there, or the National CDFI did a case study on this. Um, residents who sold a business and had capital gains invested in a a few different areas um, in real estate, but also in buying their local newspaper, which is one of the the oldest newspapers in the state of Indiana. Um, And they have kind of revitalized that and breathed new life into that uh, into that publication. Um, So again, the made possible at least in part through the Opportunity zones Incentive. Um, I'll close out with a couple of of resources there. Um, Definitely recommend taking a look at some of the the activity map and investment highlights where we are aiming to track uh, some of this this information and the latest um, investments, funds, and initiatives across the country.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Catherine. That was that was great. I, I love all those case studies that you have. So we're gonna get to our our final panelists here today. Last but not least is Robert Scott. He joins us from the Small Business Administration. He's the regional administrator for the Great Lakes region. Uh, Robert, I I don't believe, I think you said you did have a slide deck, but you might might just uh, wing it. So up to you what you want to do here, go ahead.
7: Yeah, uh, absolutely, I'll show it here in a second, but uh, Catherine brought up a, a very good point. My region as the regional administrator actually includes the state of Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And I've actually personally been to Brookville, Indiana and met the gentleman that created that Opportunity Zone Fund and turned around and bought the real estate and bought that newspaper. And actually it's two newspapers. It's one of the very few newspapers that produces a Republican newspaper and a Democrat newspaper. And it, it goes besides like in the olden days when the, the big dailies used to do that. So it's actually a, a fascinating story. This town is about 45 minutes outside of Cincinnati. Uh, and it's, it's kind of uh, uh, Northwest of Cincinnati, kind of in the middle of nowhere, but they have a, a large man-made lake and a little cute rural downtown. Uh, and it's one of the poorest counties in the state of Indiana. This gentleman sold a manufacturing company in cincinnati he's from brookville indiana and decided to create this opportunity zone fund and do a lot of good in his hometown so it's a fascinating story highly encourage anyone on listening today to uh, certainly look at that Um, i also have another cool uh, uh, example outside of chicago in the south side of chicago where a woman decided to use the opportunity zone uh, area and use SBA resources a small business administration resources and she bought a building and totally rehabbed it i actually toured that building a couple of weeks ago fascinating story where she builds landscapes on top of buildings green spaces that go on top that serve as like a protector barrier for the roof another fascinating story they're called uh Omni Ecosystems if if anyone uh wants wants to do so but uh, so, the great thing about the U.S. Small Business Administration, and, and if you didn't hear about us before the pandemic, you definitely know us now because we are the tip of the spear when it comes to the economic recovery uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, obviously, you've, most of you have probably heard of the PPP loan or the Economic Injury Disaster Loan or idle for short. Uh, that's kind of been our thing the past four months. It's, I've lived it, breathed it, and actually this is the very first webinar I've done that wasn't related to that uh, specifically. So happy to talk about something new, but uh, just for all your, your listeners' uh, knowledge, the PPP, we will stop taking applications for that on August 8th. So if you will want it, go to sba.gov to research it and certainly apply. But um, the great thing about the Small Business Administration is we've been engaged with the Opportunity Zone program since uh, President Trump uh, signed it into law. We are actually uh, one of the leaders uh, within the White House uh, Entrepreneur Development uh, Initiative and leading the entrepreneur track. And why do you think that is? Well, the, the sole purpose of the U.S. Small Business Administration is to help create, support, and expand small business. That's why we were created in 1953. It's what we're doing now. Now now we're saving businesses, uh, certainly during the pandemic. But it kind of intersects with the opportunity zone areas because we have focused uh, a lot of our attention in those areas in the country that need some uplifting. and, And certainly these OZs were selected because of that, that they needed a kick. To, to help them and certainly government, uh, uh, you know, all partnering together to do it and helping support one, the small businesses that are already located in the OZs, but also helping businesses if they want to locate in the OZs to uh, take advantage of obviously the tax benefits that, that are there. Um, we're there to help. And then finally, obviously, uh, the use of OZ funds to start businesses. Uh, within the Opportunity Zone area. Um, Probably one of the coolest examples I have of uh, this actually in practice is in Canton, Ohio. Um, Most people are like, what's in Canton, Ohio, except for one thing, the National Football Hall of Fame. Uh, It's kind of like the staple for Canton, Ohio. I've personally been there several times. I'm a native Buckeye, but people that come to Canton, Ohio, they only stop and go to the Football Hall of Fame and then they're out of Dodge. They they'd go to Cleveland or Akron or somewhere closer where, where there's nicer hotels and nicer amenities. Well, uh, the county along with the city of Canton, along with the National Football Hall of Fame, along with the NFL, decided, you know what, we need to make this a destination. And they kind of came together and created an Opportunity Zone Fund and everyone put money uh, into the fund to, to start uh one redeveloping the area but attracting small business so what's happening now is there's a ton of small business owners that are a from the area that are now buying land building ho- high-end hotels there's going to be a top golf that's built um that's kind of centered around football not necessarily golf but a, a simulated football football playing, along with all the other restaurants, and all of these are small business owners in the area that are taking advantage of the Opportunity Zone program. Along with that, they're taking advantage of the U.S. Small Business Administration's programs, whether it be free counseling or lending programs, such as the 504 loan or the 7A loan um, that are still here. They're not gone just because of the pandemic, Uh, but they're tapping into us, as well as as a government-guaranteed lending program to assist them in buying a building, buying land, or whatever it may be. When you work with the SBA and you're working with a lender, it helps that Opportunity Zone Fund Manager feel a little better because the US government, um, though we're not perfect, with these government guaranteed loans, if, if you're getting backed by the government, it gives those investors, it gives that opportunity zone fund manager a little more safety net saying, oh, well, they've got, they've got some skin in the game. The government has guaranteed their loan, whether it be uh, that, that parcel of real estate or that building or the business or whatever it may be, um, we're there to, to, to certainly assist you. I know I'm running tight on time, so I I didn't want to go, but um, you can read about us and and all the services that we provide at sba.gov. Again, I'll say that again, sba.gov. We have district offices, 68 of them across the country. Feel free to tap into us. What I always like to tell, tell everyone is, you know what, we're free. You might as well utilize us. Um, but it is prepaid you pay your taxes so we're prepaid services but we don't pay any additional fees so feel free to use it. again sba.gov
0: that's great all right well thank you robert uh, sba a lot of great resources uh absolutely for small business owners eagles i know you wanted to say a, a few remarks before we move on so please go ahead close us out here if you'd like
1: yeah it was a great turnout so let me uh tell you what i i think we've gotten out of this number one The Oz Incentive is a bipartisan success story, and it's going to continue, in my opinion. So all of the kind of uncertainties that are revolving around uh, politics and a number of other things, uh, I think, are to be considered. But I, I think overall, this program is going to have a chance to prove its value. But COVID has created, I think, a pause in how this program is gonna move forward at the moment. There's a lot of dry powder and people are holding back, I think, in order to see more clarity what's happening to the economy, what exactly is happening inside of opportunity zones, uh, et cetera. But the story, I think, is mixed. I've been on the phone with a number of different OZ funds and some of them are doing gangbuster business in certain parts of the country in which the projects, uh, there's high demand for their projects. Be the multi-family types of projects. I don't see much in hospitality. I see a lot in uh, a diversification starting to take place, and this is what's interesting. I think right now in the evolution of this program, we're seeing projects in uh, you know areas like entrepreneurship and accelerators and workforce training, childcare, education, broadband, all that. Pretty exciting that uh, entrepreneurs uh, as funders are interested in. Not just, if you will, you know, real estate, multifamily, which is important, but other kinds of assets. The other thing that strikes me uh, from the presentations is uh, the leveraging of multiple sources of funding. I think Jim Sorensen put it best in terms of his capital stack, that in putting these projects together, one should use multiple programs. And I know the White House has got 160 different programs identified at the federal level. That are supposed to align with the Oz incentive. I think we've barely scratched the surface on, on what those opportunities are to do that kind of integration. So, and finally, just data. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's a big opportunity for the data people, interest data mavens, to uh, pull together some important data on opportunity zones, socioeconomic data, what's happening, healthcare, et cetera, as well as the impact measures uh, that are necessary to What we need is a set of success stories that are not just for investor return, but also for community impact. So I think there still is a challenge to educate the public and educate the political class that uh, there are major benefits to this program if we give it a chance to grow. Anyway, I wanted to personally thank Uh, panelists and the audience for being here for this program it was an honor to uh, be a host
0: all right well thank you eagles and uh, thank you for asking me to uh, co-host with you and and help moderate the panel Uh, thank you everybody we're at three o'clock eastern time so we're going to sign off but uh, thanks to our panelists again and for all of our attendees really appreciate your time thank you
4: Thanks. thanks guys
0: that's it for our show today a huge thank you to you our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.